1: Hi there. Welcome to the New Books in Medicine channel. We're a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Alec Casu, and I'm very fortunate to have Arlene Tuchman as a guest on our program today. Dr. Tuchman is the Nelson O. Tyrone Jr. Chair in History at Vanderbilt University. And today we'll be discussing her new book, Diabetes, A History of Race and Disease, published in 2020 by Yale University Press. In this work, Dr. Tuchman traces the cultural history of diabetes as it took on associations with various racial groups and sociologic connotations over the past uh, several centuries. Dr. Tuchman, thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Uh, Thank you for having me. I'm really delighted to be here.
1: To start off, could you tell us a bit about your background and how you came to be interested in studying the history of science, medicine, and disease?
0: Uh, yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, I was a uh, biology major. Oh, there we go. <sighs> um, I was a biology major in college. I went to a very tiny college in Southern Vermont, Marlboro College. Uh, it actually just closed, I'm um, sad to say. Um, so I was a uh, PUMED and um uh, This was in the 70s, and um, Watergate was happening. I became very interested in history and uh, ended up becoming interested in the history of science and uh, history of medicine. And um, I just started thinking that maybe medical school wasn't for me. So uh, I studied uh, history of biology, history of Darwinism, Uh, And that just got me interested in uh, graduate school. Um, So I went to graduate school, University of Wisconsin, and uh, was starting out in the history of biology. And to be honest, there was fellowship money for people who were doing history of medicine. So I switched my topic just a little bit. And uh, when I was hired at uh, Vanderbilt University in 1986, I was hired as an historian of science. Uh, But the students were very interested in history of medicine, and I started developing classes in that. And so I I would say that it's through my teaching that I um, really uh, started diving into the history of medicine. And I suppose since I was pre-med, that in some ways you could say it took me back to my first love.
1: Right. I, I, it's interesting to hear that you started off as pre-med. Do you, um, to what extent do you view kind of the scientific uh, kind of mindset figuring into your um, kind of the, the skills required to be a historian?
0: Well, it's definitely uh, good to be comfortable with the science, uh, not to feel as though I need to... Um, Run away from it, or that I'll never understand it. But since my training began in the history of science and the history of medicine, I'm far more interested in um, what people in the past named or labeled science. So, why do certain ways of knowing get the label of science and therefore uh, become privileged? Um, so, I I tend to look much more at the meanings ascribed to the claim that someone is scientific. But it certainly helps to uh, feel comfortable with the scientific concepts themselves.
1: How did you uh, become interested, you know, in particular in writing about the history of diabetes and race?
0: Well, it it started with an interest in uh, the history of diabetes. So I was finishing up my second book and thinking about what I would want to do next. And again, because of my teaching uh, in the history of medicine, I had become very interested in the history of disease. And um, fortuitously, my dad, who uh, had been uh, diagnosed with diabetes in his mid-60s, fortuitously, he was moving to Nashville right about uh, that time. And I just thought how interesting it would be to write about the history of diabetes. The interesting thing about my dad's case is that he was initially misdiagnosed, which is interesting to think about how this happened. Uh, He was in his mid-60s, a very round man, um, a short, round man, a bit overweight. And when he went to his doctor, his doctor just assumed once he decided that my dad had diabetes... He just assumed that he had what we now call type 2 diabetes. And it wasn't until my parents retired to Florida that my dad got the correct diagnosis. And basically, they had treated him with diet and eventually with oral medication. But he just kept losing weight and losing weight and losing weight. And, um, And in Florida, they realized that he had... A rare form of diabetes, which is um, L-A-D-A, LATA or latent autoimmune diabetes in adults. So basically, my dad had the equivalent of what we now call type 1 diabetes, but the one that um, doesn't uh, manifest until people are much older. Um, so what 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 I found so interesting about that was the assumptions that had been made about my dad that led to this misdiagnosis. Uh, so pretty soon after I started reading around about what other people had written about the history of diabetes, I came across the um uh, the claim that diabetes had been uh, considered a Jewish disease in the late 19th century. So other historians have t- had talked about that. No one had developed it, but, um, but that was certainly around. And, and I just was really intrigued because certainly everything that I was learning about um, what made someone susceptible to the disease was that in terms of racial groups, That if you were African American, if you were Native American, if you were Mexican American, then you had a very high, or you had a a higher likelihood of developing the disease. And so I just was uh, basically hooked. Right? I just I wanted to understand what what happened that the racial group that was connected with diabetes had uh, changed so radically over time.
1: Right. And uh, I mean, that was uh, just starting off with the book. One of the most interesting uh, things for me that uh, that the disease was associated with Jews at one point. Um, that that was just complete news to me. And I imagine will be um, complete news to some readers. How, how did that happen that the disease disease um, at its beginnings came to be associated with Jews? Uh,
0: well, the story really um, has to do with um greater attention being paid to diabetes in and of itself in the late 19th century. So we're dealing there, so in the late 19th, early 20th century, with, changing, um, with a change in what the major killers were. Before then, most people died of a combination of infectious diseases and malnutrition. But because of improvements in public health and because of improvements with nutrition, people were living longer. And so they were living long enough to develop diseases that were often referred to as the diseases of civilization. Uh, so diabetes, cardiovascular diseases, uh, cancer and um, and so there was an, there was increased interest in general in diabetes in the late 19th century because so many more people were dying of it. Um, the first doctors who started writing about diabetes and race were uh, physicians who were practicing in Europe, and they tended to practice at the uh, Spas, and uh, and they noticed that a disproportionate number of people who were coming to their spas were Jewish, and um, and so we one question that we want to ask is you know basically who were physicians seeing, who were studying diabetes, who was coming to them, who who had enough wealth to go and see a doctor when they weren't feeling well. I want to add that it was very common to use race or to turn to race to explain health disparities. It's, it's just basically the, what the medical community and public health community saw when they looked at health disparities because we could ask, why weren't they seeing class or why weren't they seeing location right we keep talking about how place matters or why weren't they seeing things like discrimination what what physicians tended to see especially in the united states was race and race focuses attention on the bodies and the behaviors of particular populations and one can see that in the way in which they answered the question of why did uh, Jews have high rates of diabetes? And the answer really uh, uh, swept across a very wide spectrum. Some answers were very racist. They talked about character defects of the Jews and that they were particular, particularly neurotic. But Jewish physicians and anthropologists themselves didn't uh, argue with the fact that diabetes rates were high um, um, in their population. They just had a very different explanation of that. And they claimed that it was because of millennia of discrimination that had made their nervous systems extremely labile. And um, so Jews were the most nervous of all people. And uh, diabetes at the time was considered to be a, a disease of the nervous system.
1: I'm curious how we can apply um this, you know, there there's some kind of to some extent there's a there's a failure going on here to um you know to understand some of the underlying issues. For example, um, you know, socioeconomic status might be a much more important indicator than race. Um, you know, however, this is race is something that's certainly considered in medicine today. Um, you know, coming up with the diagnosis, um, is a process of understanding to some extent what diseases are going to be most likely in the particular patient population, um, that the, the particular patient that you're looking at, uh, falls into. How, how do we balance kind of that, the usefulness that race can provide in, um, in helping a doctor come to a diagnosis, uh, with kind of some of the harmful um, at, um, byproducts of that that you mentioned.
0: Yeah, um, I, I actually don't know how useful it is. As long as by race, what is understood is that there's something about the biology of this population. It's just so problematic, and. Um, so um, I know that there's a big debate in medicine today about the usefulness of race. And, and I happen to fall in the camp that thinks that race blinds us far more than it helps us. Um, if when we talk about race, we mean we would mean racism, then I would feel very differently about that, but um, the there are so many assumptions that I mean, just even how we divide up people into particular racial groups, and there are I mean, for such a long time we've been people have we've been aware that people are multiracial, but especially now, and so how do you decide that someone who is in your office is African American and 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 not white. Well, you can talk about self identity, but that doesn't mean that biologically they are clearly in one population. So, what information are you actually getting that helps with the treatment that you may be um, uh, deciding upon based? Upon assumptions you have about this particular person's biological makeup, I just find it to be extremely problematic, and there has been uh, a, a lot of dissent around um, uh, pharmaceuticals that are directed toward particular racial groups. and um, And and, and for, for for my taste, they've been pretty well debunked.
1: Right, and I think people may be surprised to learn, you know how. You know, these are not implicit practices. These are things that are really baked into the medical education. You know, these are in textbooks that students currently use. Um, you know, uh, lab values can be um, can be benchmarked. Um, you know, normal for a certain race, but not for another race. Um, so, so you know, these are these are really quite ingrained issues.
0: Right. Yeah. And I think you know, one of the things that I've learned from the history of of um, diabetes is that that when a belief really um, gets entrenched that certain populations are more susceptible to particular diseases, it renders other populations invisible. So even when a population may be having problems uh, with a disease, it's often not seen. And a a classic example of this is that the belief was so strong in the first half of the 20th century, as you and I have already discussed, that the um, populations most susceptible to diabetes were whites in general and then Jews in particular, that when uh, a handful of physicians who were working in African American communities and were noticing and writing about increasing rates of diabetes in the populations with whom they were working, it just never gained any traction. So you can keep reading in the textbooks at the time that diabetes does is not a problem in African-American communities. It's not a problem in African-American communities, even though I was able to find articles that Physicians were publishing who tended to work in, um, uh, in uh, hospitals and clinics that were affiliated with universities like Johns Hopkins or uh, Tulane, and, um, and, and no one saw it. And then the, the whole logic behind or that, that reinforced not seeing it was so squarely in um, embedded in the scientific racist claims of the past. So as I mentioned, uh, diabetes was considered to be a nervous disease and the explanation for why Jews had such a high susceptibility was because they were the most nervous. but to be nervous was or to have an advanced nervous system was a sign that you, were more evolved, I mean, in a very strict Darwinian sense. And so physicians would say, we don't see diabetes among African-Americans because their nervous systems are not developed enough for them to have this disease. And that was, uh, one also saw that belief expressed in in, um, claims that uh, African-Americans didn't feel as much pain. And there's a lot of work in the history of medicine on the consequences of that conviction that you don't need to give or didn't need to give uh, anesthetics to African-Americans because they just biologically were not as as sensitive to um, to pain.
1: And one of the, you know, frightening kind of things that we can um, extrapolate that from this is you know, today we, we look back at these um, kind of assumptions that doctors were making and the the stories that they spun from their um, observations that are certainly colored by um, their biases. Um, you know, we, we think, okay, today uh, we hope our, our research is much more evidence-based, much more objective. Um, but, you know, what, you know, the concern is... Um, what assumptions are we making today that in, in 50 or 100 years, we're going to look back and say, you know, that was not based in science? You know, since, since writing this book, have you come across, um, uh, you know, examples of assumptions that, would, that, that we make today that um, looking forward 50 or 100 years, uh, we may think were mistakes?
0: Oh well, I think that's a given, right? I mean, um, but I do want to say that um, uh, that many of the beliefs, we can even say most of the beliefs that we have today in medicine are more evidence based than they were in the past. Um, there are more rigorous um, tools that are used. Statistics have has just become a lot more sophisticated. There's also a far more diverse population um, represented in our scientific and medical communities. And and so there's more robust discussions going on and debates and um, in a lot, many more challenges. And um, so uh, I definitely want to uh, say that I see changes having happened. Um, that said, and, and I'm just going to stick with diabetes for coherence, but um, one of the um, reasons why I find it so disturbing that um, our focus is continues to be on race when we look at health disparities with diabetes is that the rates among poor whites, for example, living in Appalachia, are... Um, extremely high and, um, and almost as high as among African-Americans. And when we read about um, what, what are the risk factors, right? So usually with, with diabetes, the first risk factor is, um, is often obesity. And, um, and then very quickly, where one, one gets to how race is a risk factor, well, if you put poor whites in that equation, then that just starts disrupting the idea that uh, that that race is what matters, and um, and so I don't want to say that um, race in the form of racism is immaterial because we do know that. People who are exposed to constant stress have elevated levels of cortisol, and this makes them more susceptible to a whole host of chronic diseases. So from that perspective, we could say that the color of one's skin may be a risk factor, but it's because of the chronic stress. It's not because of um, something inherent in their biology that has persisted over um, uh, centuries and and millennia. Um, So there's a way in which this focus on race rendered diabetes among poor whites invisible um, really until the, uh, the, uh, the beginning of this millennium. And we're still not fully abandoning the um, temptation to see race as a um, risk factor for diabetes or other uh, chronic diseases.
1: Right. And, and as you say, the data is there. Um, so where, you know, to, to demonstrate that, that this is an issue more of socioeconomics than of race, where is the disconnect? Is it among, um, you know, people... Uh, publishing scientific research? Is it among policymakers? Or, you know, is it just among the general public that is set in certain ideas, and it it takes some energy to um, kind of break that inertia?
0: I would say yes, and yes, and yes. Uh, The work that needs to be done to reframe the way that we explain Health and disease and health disparities needs needs to be tackled on all of those levels and, um, and 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 this is really what I was trying to get at when I said you know in the 1930s the 1940s the data was there um, articles were being published the numbers were there showing that diabetes was a problem in African American communities. And still, in 1985, when the government finally published a report, the Heckler Report, that um, was a a government-commissioned report that was the brainchild of the United States Secretary of Health and Human Services, Margaret Heckler, and Thomas Malone, the Deputy Deputy Director of the uh, National Institutes of Health. When they commissioned a study to find out how bad health disparities were in this country, they ended up, it was basically a literature review. They didn't do their own research. They ended up with a 10 volume work that sent shockwaves through the country because of the degree to which health disparities were revealed. And, right, it was a literature review. The data was there, and not until they brought it together and produced it and brought a lot of attention to it were they able to um, uh, get people's awareness. I do have to say, however, that the Heckler Report, I mean, this was under Reagan, Um, It was uh, pretty soft on the uh, social determinants of health and um, pretty heavy handed on the biology and the behavior behaviors of the um, uh, uh, racial groups that they that they studied. Um but the 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 challenge of reframing is something that, you know, it's not just the data, It's also, as as you indicated, it's all of us becoming aware of how um, the language we use and the, um, the way that we see problems, how the stories we tell about why some populations are, Suffering more from a disease, and others are not. Those stories just keep reinforcing the, um, yeah, I'll just say the racist beliefs that that all of us, um, in one way or another, continue to perpetuate because we're just we think that we're making neutral statements, but we're not.
1: So applied, you know, let's say we're working in the field of applied history, you know, do you you see a way, you know, investigators and researchers might not be aware of the biases they have it, you know, is there a way to just to put a check on yourself as a researcher that you are not letting yourself spin a story, but rather you are just looking at the data in and as objective as a way as possible?
0: Well, I think it's a little, unfortunately, I think it's a little more complicated than that because, um, because the data itself is often already um, problematic. Um, and not because anyone's intentional, but it's because of the very questions that you take with you Uh, let's just say, call it into the field or into the laboratory. Um, So in this country forever, um, we collect data on race. That's just what we do. In other countries, they're less interested in race and they're more interested in class. So, um, and so if, if you, with all the best intentions, being as objective as it's possible for you to be, if you approach a problem with categories that you've chosen in order to create order out of the chaos, then in some ways you're already biasing your your study. So, um, yeah, I think that one of the conversations it's really important for us to have is one, why do we continue to hold on to the notion that, race, that, racial, that that racial groups is the way to make sense of health disparities? Um, I don't want to be understood as saying that race doesn't matter. Uh, race matters because racism matters. And people of color are having more serious health problems. Look at what we're seeing with COVID-19 because of racism. And so we cannot ignore the meaning that we give to race in this country that is increasing the um, the health problems of people of color. Um, but... Um, but that's part of what I'm trying to say. If if we thought about social determinants of health, if we thought about socioeconomic issues, if we thought about discrimination, all of which has an impact on people's health, then we would be producing different data. So, so that's the first thing I wanted to say. The second one, I'll, I'll be brief, um, is that it's hard to check yourself, which is why scientific work needs to continue going on in communities. And, um, and I would say what you want are communities of people who are comfortable disagreeing and challenging each other. And, um, and, and then I think there's a a greater chance of uh, coming up with, um, Ways of looking at disease and treating disease that would be more just and equitable.
1: So you know we're we're speaking about how how we currently view disease, how um, you know researchers can have their biases um, affect their research, you know through the design of their their research before even we're talking about the interpretation. Um, one, um, I would say the major. Um, person, uh, or figure in, in the book, um, in terms of, I, w- I would say the person who may have had the most, um, impact on how we view diabetes today might be, um, Elliot, John, uh, Jocelyn. Could you, uh, could you speak a, a little bit about, um, kind of how he helped shape our current view uh, who he was and how he shaped our view of, of diabetes?
0: Sure. Um, so um, Jocelyn was a physician who practiced in Boston. Um, he was part of the Boston elite. He uh, went to Yale as an undergraduate. He went to Harvard Medical School, uh, and he started practicing medicine in the late 19th century in Boston. Uh, he specialized in diabetes at a time when most practitioners were not specialists so uh that was already unusual in and of itself and um and then he ended up uh publishing a textbook that became the standard textbook in um for uh diabetes it was called the treatment of diabetes mellitus uh the first edition was 19, uh, 1916 uh, he based that first edition on his experience with the patients he had seen. And by 1916, he was able to draw on 1,000 cases. He also was a voracious reader. He had very strong connections with uh, physicians and scientists in Europe. He traveled there a lot. And uh, his textbook became the standard text. By the time of his death in 1962, it had gone through 10 editions, and it continued after his death. Um, so he greatly influenced how the medical field viewed uh, diabetes, and um, everyone cited him. And, uh, and he was really one of the primary uh, reasons why, uh, or at least the person that, um, that everyone cited, when they would repeat the claim that diabetes was a um, disease that affected Jews more than uh, anyone else. Um, anyone who wrote it would always say, as Jocelyn said, as Jocelyn said, as Jocelyn said. Um, he did not believe that uh, Jews had a high rate because of anything um, about their biology. He thought it was because, he said that they're they're. They have diabetes because they're fat. And um, he was a firm believer that um, anyone could control their diabetes if they wanted to. Um, so uh, I don't know. Is there anything else that you would like me to say uh, about him?
1: Um, well, no. I mean, you you just bring up a point. Um, you know, he, he uses the word fat um, to describe why people get diabetes rather than, um, any, you know, being associated with any particular race, even though, you know, as you say, people, people coming after Jocelyn cited him for, for this idea that, um, diabetes is associated with race. I'm curious, uh, to what, degree, you know, you, you never bring up the idea of quote, fat shaming in your book, but I think it's a concept that's, you know, implicit throughout. How do you, how do you see the perception of fat people, um, or fatness, um, tracking with the, uh, perceptions of diabetes over time?
0: Yeah. So, um, I, I, um, Yeah. So fat shaming is a very, uh, important part of the story. And, um, and, and, and Jocelyn was a, um, he was a fat shamer. He, uh, he had no problem and other physicians had no problem saying that, um, you should shame your, uh, patients who have diabetes into losing weight. Um, and, um, Uh, And, and, and that has been a problem uh, with the treatment of of diabetes since then. Um, And I would say that obesity is also a, I mean, it is now, it wasn't considered a disease when uh, Jocelyn was writing. It was something that was considered to be um, a descriptor of somebody's size. And, um, and the uh, so the, the the link between obesity and diabetes was was very tight, and uh, but it's not until I, I'm pretty sure it's the 1980s that uh, the term diabesity was uh, was coined that equated the two. And um, and uh, there's a, a a lot of work, as you um, clearly know, on the problems with fat shaming and with assuming that uh, obesity is something that is totally under someone's control. And also with the assumption that um, if you are obese, that you are necessarily unhealthy. I mean, there are, um, there, are there are lots of, of people who are overweight and fat who are healthy. Um, if we keep it focused on diabetes, there are the majority of people who are fat do not have diabetes. And there are people even with type 2 diabetes who are not fat. So that whole equation is extremely problematic. And the fat shaming, as you've mentioned, is um, also something that people with diabetes experience when they're in the clinical setting, that they're shamed for having the condition because the assumption is that if they would just lose weight, then uh, this would not be a problem.
1: And it just points again to this idea that, you know, a number of people looking at the exact same situation can spin a different story around it. So, right. you know, earlier on, we, we can, diabetes, it's the exact same disease. We can we can paint it as one in which the patients are, are victims um, of um you know, com- coming to this new country and there's all this food around versus, you know, it's their fault that they have this disease. Um, so it can teach us lessons about how, you know, to, to make us realize that we are deciding to assign these connotations to certain diseases. It, it's not, um, it, it doesn't just fall out of the heavens.
0: Right, exactly.
1: Um, can you talk about um, the thrifty gene hypothesis and how that related um, to the perception of diabetes uh, being associated with Native Americans?
0: Sure. Um, so, so let me just also say quickly that um, the, the way that I have structured my book is that each chapter is a different racial population that was considered to be most likely to develop diabetes, to have the highest risk of developing diabetes. And I trace how that changed over time. So I begin talking about Jews, and then I talk about middle class whites. and, um, And then I talk about the invisibility of diabetes in the African American community. And all of that um, is situated before uh, mid-century. So the first population after the uh, World War II um, to be labeled at highest risk of developing diabetes were Native Americans. And, um, and that, the, that research uh, really took off in the 1950s and the 1960s. And in the early 1960s, a um, a human geneticist by the name of James Neal, who had done some work on sickle cell anemia, uh, became really interested in how a disease like diabetes could become so widespread. So he was not focused on Native Americans; he was interested in the global reach of this disease. He's a human geneticist he had worked on sickle cell anemia and he was in uh thinking with the mindset of uh someone who's interested in evolution and he just asked how could a disease like this have spread so far and wide why didn't natural selection basically knock it out And he came up with a story, and and he labeled it a story. This is not us now saying, oh, you know, doctors are always, uh, physicians are always coming, you know, making up their stories. He called it a story, a hypothesis. He said, let's imagine a gene, a thrifty gene, that would have made it possible for early humans who were constantly, constantly subjected to alternating periods of feast and famine. Let's imagine that a thrifty gene allowed individuals to store fats efficiently during times of feast. So when they ended up in a period of famine, they had a lot of fat to carry them through they would have survived. And so he came up with the thrifty gene hypothesis. And what he then argued is that when people who have this gene end up being exposed to plenty all the time, then what had once conferred an evolutionary advantage becomes a liability because you are packing on the pounds being a very efficient store of fat, but you never have to benefit from that because you, there are no longer periods of um, famine. Um, so he did not focus it on Native Americans, but others did. And um, And what ended up coming out of that was this notion that Indigenous communities, because this was not only applied to um, uh, Native Americans; it was applied to um, Native peoples in other um, uh, places as well, like Australia. And um, it the form it ended up taking was that their bodies were basically still like bodies of early humans, so that their bodies were evolutionarily primitive and had not evolved like the bodies of, um, European, uh, people of European ancestry, their bodies had not evolved to match modern times. And, um, and so they were out of step, right? This is uh, Jared Diamond's whole, um, Uh, argument, although he wasn't the first.
1: So I, I, you know, I'm continually, as we're talking, just trying to figure out, you know, all the ways in which we can make sure we're not making the same mistakes today. And it it seems like a lot of, almost all of these examples um, amount to uh, people coming up with a story that is perfectly feasible it's these are stories that you know these are theories or stories that make sense um but uh but don't necessarily have a a definite body of evidence backing them up um i i hope that you know this is something that we're better at today at at um you know Maybe even in reviewers um, looking at uh, scientific articles, kind of being on the lookout for making sure that um, that the investigators are not, um, you know, uh, allowing them to run themselves to run free, um, spinning their own story, but rather um, making sure that um, that the observations are are shaping the story.
0: Yeah, and, and I think that we are. Um, I, I think that this is a reason why it's so important for us to have robust conversations and debates about um, scientific ideas. And, um, and you know, again, I think it's really important to emphasize that these aren't stories that are willy-nilly. Um they they do make sense of the data. It's just as you're also indicating, there can be there can be more than one story that one way of making sense of the data. and um and the only way to keep refining which stories are more um, truthful, Is to continue having uh, robust discussions and debates, and this is what happens in scientific meetings. It's what happens through the peer review process. It's what happens in public spaces, Um, and it's it's why um, public discourse is just so critically important. And um, and to keep coming back to the connection that these. ways of explaining have to the information that we have gathered?
1: Those, those words make me very hopeful. Um, you know, towards the end of the book, the, the sense that I was starting to get is okay that, you know, diabetes is an epidemic. Um, it, it seems like the only, only way to mitigate or address the epidemic, um, at its source is to, uh, is to get rid of or mitigate poverty. That's a pretty hard thing to do. is, is that um, Are there any other strategies that, um, that we should be thinking about or um, you know are, are you also in, in, the, um, in the mindset that really addressing poverty is the only way to address uh, the diabetes epidemic?
0: yeah, so i'm I'm gonna back off a of, so i I would say I think poverty is critical. Um, instead of poverty, I want to say structural racism because poverty um, loses the addition that people of color um, struggle with that's over and above what people what white people in poverty s- struggle with. so i I prefer structural racism to poverty because it includes it. Uh, And I do think that many of our health problems would be better served by us working to alleviate all of the aspects of structural racism. And I also understand that people, when they are sick, need help, and that for people who are practicing medicine – Their focus is on the clinical encounter. And so what do you as a clinician do when you have someone in your office who is sick and um, poor, maybe a person of color, uh, because you can't say to them, I I can't do anything. Um, Your your living conditions are what need to be fixed, right? That's not going to work. And I would say probably the best thing is what you and I have already touched upon. Um, don't blame. Don't patronize and recognize that your partner, your pa- the patient, is your partner or your ally. And um, you know, back in the 1920s, physicians were already saying that diabetes almost more than any other disease, needs buy-in from the patient because it is so affected by lifestyle and the choices that someone makes. But I think it's critically important to understand that not all of your patients have the same ability to make the same kinds of choices. And this is why a partnership is so critically important. So when you come up as a clinician with Recommendations and suggestions, you need to be talking with your patients about what obstacles they face in trying to implement them. And so maybe they can't do what you know is best practice because they don't have access to or can't afford, don't have access and can't afford to eat um, fruits and vegetables. Um, They can't join a gym. They can't even sometimes go outside and feel safe. So you have to work with your patients who know best what challenges they're facing and come up with a plan that will help them to do what they can within the constraints that they have. And and then we all have to be fighting for a more just and equitable distribution of um, resources. So that people have a, a better chance of being successful when they try and make the changes that we all know from umpteen studies uh, would be good for everybody to do if they want to um, no longer live with chronic disease.
1: And those words m- prompt me to be, to be hopeful too, because um, you know those changes that you are. Suggesting or kind of supporting in the medical community are ones that I see certainly happening. Um, you know, as part of the med- medical education, making sure you know um, shared decision making is a big buzzword in medicine now. Um, but right, thinking of the doctor-patient relationship more as a partnership than um, the older view of uh, kind of the paternalistic doctor and and the um, and to the patient who is, is a subservient learner. Um, Dr. Tuckman, um, before we wrap up, I'd love to ask you what you're working on now and what's up next for you.
0: Um, yeah. So um, uh, I am um, very busy with, uh, with the book Um But when I'm not, uh, I am looking ahead to a new project uh, on the history of addiction and the family. Uh, I'm very interested in tracing the historical transition from thinking of addiction as a disease of an individual to a broad view of uh, addiction as a uh, family disease, and actually more recently, what we've been seeing with the opium epidemic, um, to think of it as a disease of communities. So um, I want to know, like, when did the idea that families of addicts needed treatment in their own right? When did that take hold? And I'm interested in the racial and class dimensions of that development. Um, you know, how was the family imagined as, um, this idea uh, took off of, um, addiction being a family disease. What I would really love to do is to dive into what family members said about the problems tearing apart their families. Um, and I would love to take this back, uh, as far as I could go, like early 19th century, late 18th century. So that means looking for letters and memoirs of people who lived with family members who struggled with addiction. Um, I'd hope to do some of that research this year. I'm actually on leave, uh, but the pandemic has uh, made that, uh, somewhat difficult. So, um, yeah, we'll see where it goes maybe in the spring.
1: Well, this, uh, this is all very exciting. I, I mean, diabetes, there, there aren't much bigger epidemics, um, you know, addiction—that one of the largest epidemics uh, in our country. Also, um, such uh, exciting and and timely work. Uh, well, Dr. Tuckman, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Uh,
0: the pleasure was uh, was all mine. Thank you.